Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday, the 2nd of November. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. And Annika, it's a huge news week. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what you're interested in. We've got a US election, we've got the race that stops the nation, and, if it's your thing, interest rate announcements on Tuesday too. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be huge. Um, On today's show, we're going to go deep on the future of the Royals with Australia's most famous lawyer, Geoffrey Robertson. We are responsible for the tabloid interest for the fascination with this family, which is really irrelevant to most of our daily lives. A very interesting conversation about the Royals coming up first. Let's hit the big news of today. The UK is preparing for a second national lockdown as its second wave threatens to overwhelm hospitals. Yeah, from Thursday, pubs, restaurants, cafes and retail will be shut for at least a month. Here's the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. In this country, as across much of Europe, the virus is spreading even faster than the reasonable worst-case scenario of our scientific advisers. In America, too, a devastating new record with 99,000 COVID cases reported in just one day. But meanwhile, here in Australia, we've seen no cases of community transmission nationally for the first time in five months. Here's Health Minister Greg Hunt. We feel for people right across Europe and the United States and around the world, but we're thankful that as a country we have achieved something which is almost miraculous. Yeah, it's just getting more and more amazing as this contrast develops, Annika, between what we've achieved here and what's going on in the rest of the world. Yeah, look, they did get their numbers down before they all had summer up there in the Northern Hemisphere, so fingers crossed we can make it through summer and not bounce back like they have. Yeah, and back to work for Anastasia Palaszczuk today after winning a third term as Queensland's Premier. Can I thank the people of Queensland for once again putting their trust in uh, my government and our team. And I vow that I will work hard for you each and every day and I will repay that trust. Votes for the minor parties like One Nation and Clive Palmer's United Australia Party dried up with a 5% swing to Labor. And one of Palaszczuk's first acts upon re-election was confirming the state will remain shut to Sydney and Victoria until at least the end of the month. Uh, It's opening up to the rest of New South Wales from tomorrow. Uh, Annika, it was a pretty big victory, the first Australian female political leader to secure three successive election victories. Yeah, I think there's a few things going on here. One, it's the importance of incumbency. If you're already in office, whether Labor, Liberal, State, Federal, it's a huge advantage, especially during a crisis. People do like to stick with the governments they've got. Another historic trend we have seen for years now is if we have a federal Liberal government, we tend to have more state Labor governments and vice versa. When you've got Labor in power in Canberra, the number of seats the Libs hold uh, at a state level go up. So I don't think it's a huge surprise. I was looking at the odds going into this election and look, Anastasia Palaszczuk was the standout favourite. We have another state election next year in WA and I think incumbency being in power is a huge win at the moment. Yeah, and the other interesting story was a big drop in support from One Nation, uh, and a lot of people expected that those One Nation voters in regional Queensland would have gone to the LNP, or at least they were hoping that, but those voters went to Labor. Look, it's different from the federal election. A lot more people that would consider themselves uh, supporters uh, of of Labor did actually bleed off and and go to some of those smaller parties at the last federal election. Uh, There was a thought that that might happen again, but it looks like in times of crisis, no one is interested in adding more smaller parties to our parliaments at the moment. 
And just two days now until the US election, uh, and 92 million Americans have already voted. To put that in perspective, that's two-thirds of the total number of votes cast back in 2016. Right now, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both on a last-minute blitz, fitting in rallies in several states every day. Yeah, and on the weekend, President Trump warned that there'd be bedlam if a clear winner isn't named on election night. Uh, He was responding to the Supreme Court's decision to allow some states to continue counting mail-in ballots after election day. And you're going to have this period of nine days or seven days or whatever it is, and many bad things. Ballots are going to be, oh, we just found 10,000 ballots. Oh, that's good. We just found another 10,000. This is a horrible thing that the United States Supreme Court has done to our country. We're getting a sense it could be quite messy. Seems strange, doesn't it? In Australia, we're kind of used to not finding out election results for a while. Remember back when Gillard and Abbott were fighting uh, for the top job. But yes, it's a very unusual thing for the US. We do usually get a result on the night and it does look like they're talking about election week. So we might not get a result for a few days. Yeah, stay with us all throughout the week on The Briefing. We'll keep you updated each day. And the original and arguably, not if you ask me, definitely the best, James Bond has died. So Sean Connery died at 90 in his home in the Bahamas after a battle with dementia. The young Scott worked as a milkman in Edinburgh before getting his big break in the first Bond film, Dr No. He went on to do a total of seven Bond films, but was probably the most well-known, Tom. Yeah, and the next Bond film coming out is called No Time to Die, which is a weird name to have at this point in time. I wonder if they'll change it. In a moment, uh, a deep dive on the royal family. Today's briefing is an interview with Australia's most famous lawyer, Geoffrey Robertson. Um, And as it turns out, Annika, he has some very interesting views on the royals. He's had quite a history with the royals, Tom. I think he actually went to Prince Charles' 70th birthday recently. He also worked on a case against Princess Diana in the mid-90s. And he often socialises with younger members of the royals, including recently Meghan Markle. Yeah, the Australian QC is also the founder of the London Human Rights Legal Chambers where Amal Clooney works. And he used to host an ABC TV show called Hypotheticals. And next year, he'll be coming back from London to do a series here called It's No Longer Hypothetical, talking about post-truth, Trump, Brexit, and the royal family. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this new stage show you're doing in Australia next year. Talking about post-truth, Brexit, Trump, royal family, stolen history. Um, particularly <laughs> well, I hope the po- I won't be talking about Trump other than in retrospect, <laughs> because it's not, it's not until May, and we've got the election coming up very shortly, and I'm, I'm touching wood, touching wood so hard that I've got splinters that uh, <laughs> Biden wins. So, uh, because Trump has been in many ways a disaster, but it's called It's No Longer Hypothetical because Hypotheticals was a show I did some years ago. And uh, many of the things that were thought then to be hypothetical uh, have suddenly become very real. Climate change, obviously, being one of them. I thought I'd be talking about the fires, but now, of course, it's far more somba. It's coronavirus. And I I think, actually, you don't realize in Australia just how 
frightening it can be. I'm here in lockdown London uh, with the trying to surf the second wave. We've got 25,000 new cases every day, 300 new deaths every day. Australia is the lucky country, you know, mm. because uh, you don't have, except occasionally in Victoria perhaps, you don't really have the uh, nightmare that we're going through in Europe and, and, of course, in America. No doubt I'll be talking about coronavirus, and I just hope I'll be talking a little less panicky uh, in May, I hope. But by then, the vaccine will have plugged in, and it will be a question of what a post-vaccine world is going to be like. Well, yeah, maybe Trump will be post-truth um, by, by the time you do your talk. <laughs> post-Trump, post-vaccine world. It <laughs> might be a kinder place. Now, Annika and I are shamelessly fascinated by this this fallout between Meghan and Harry and the royal family. And we like to think that we're interested in it more, you know, beyond just some royal gossip, that there's something quite, you know, much deeper going on here. Maybe something that's emblematic of of the, the big debates we're having in society about issues like race and and privilege. It is uh, a constant embarrassment, I would think, and it certainly will be once the Queen passes on, uh, or in fact she might retire like the Pope, or the former Pope, uh, and we have Charles III, and that he will be head of Australia, and people will no doubt remember the letters he wrote as a young man to the <laughs> Governor-General who sacked the Whitlam government. So we wait uh, to see whether that will affect Australia, but it may be that uh, Australians, for the first time in their lives, will be able to elect their head of state. What do you make of what Harry's grappling with at the moment? Um, you know, he, he said just recently that he had unconscious bias and he, he wasn't aware of it, that from his understanding, his upbringing and education, that he had no idea what unconscious bias was. What, what do you make of what he's mm. kind of grappling with, given oh, he's from I a family that quite, ran the Commonwealth? Uh, quite sensible. Whatever your background is, you come into midlife with unconscious bias, with language, with concepts that don't reflect the world that you're in. And so it seems to me quite uh, self-recognizing and quite pleasant and, and good that he recognizes his unconscious biases. He's been coveted and he's been cosseted really in the, with, with wealth and uh, not with power. The royals don't have power. But he's been a prisoner of the attitudes to empire that are no doubt picked up on the daily in Buckingham Palace. And uh, they don't accord with the world as it really is, certainly with most of the world. So I think that's that's helpful. Maybe maybe he would make a good governor general. <laughs> but what's the but point I, of, of, of having that conversation knows? When, when he's tied to the ongoing benefits of, of the royal family and its connection to colonialism, which um, has entrenched so many of those unjust power dynamics? Well, he's recognized that and he's no longer part 
of the royal family that continues to some extent those values. And uh, I would wish that his father would uh, imbibe a few because he's now head of the Commonwealth, something that I think was not a good idea, but Australia even under Malcolm Turnbull supported it. So uh, we have to make allowances. It's our, we are responsible for the tabloid interest for the fascination with this family, which is really irrelevant to most of our daily lives, but adds, I suppose, uh, a bit of magic. And as I've said, a lot of entertainment to our everyday enjoyment of life. And that's the role, it seems to me, of the monarchy. It certainly is in Britain, but whether it should be quite as entrancing to Australians, I doubt very much. And certainly, if we changed our constitution, if we became a republic, I think there would be, I suppose, the entertainment value would still be there, but we'd be more conscious of ourselves and our integrity and dignity as a nation uh, if we didn't have to uh, be headed by um, a scion of the royal dynasty that's been uh, for several hundred years ruling in England. Geoffrey, the Republic was something I wanted to ask you about. Obviously, they tried and failed under Malcolm Turnbull, <laughs> leading that cause in 1999. Are you of the view that whilst the Queen is alive, this won't be something we will achieve? And is it even achievable? I think that's inevitable. Charles? I think the Queen is a, a piece of history herself. You know, when the bombs were falling on the East End, she was out as a young girl caring for uh, people whose houses had collapsed. I think uh, she served well, a role that is really um, prehistoric, or at least is uh, the use of it is probably over. But again, if you watch The Crown, and people do, uh, they <laughs> find uh, enormous enjoyment in it. But I think when she passes, uh, the question will be raised. Uh, Charles is an intelligent man, but his views are not those of certainly the majority on, on a number of instances. So I think there will be a greater interest in how a republic might develop in Britain. I mean, we had a republic once, but only for 10 years. I think the Australian republican movement will be energized uh, once that, once you have a figure who is so quintessentially British uh, or indeed English. And uh, the question will be asked, why on earth? Should we have, I suppose, a hundred years of men, actually, because uh, all the heirs are male. Little George, I think, will be head of the Australian state in 70 or 80 years' time after William. And it just seems very odd for an advanced nation to be beheaded by... Uh, an all-male Anglo-German Anglican family. And a deeply flawed family at that. Jeffrey, another thing I wanted to ask you about was something that's quite 
close to my heart, and that is free speech. Now, obviously, you're involved with the Assange case, and we've seen increasingly Western democracies in Australia and the US cracking down on free speech, especially when it comes to national security. I wanted to ask you, why is it so difficult to get the public upset about this? Well, I suppose the newspapers try, but of course they're the victims of crackdown on free speech and people say, oh, they would, wouldn't they? But it is bizarre. I mean, in Australia, a couple of years ago, you had the federal police raiding a correspondent for the Australian. You had it raiding the ABC. for reasons on the authority of some court clerk in Queenbeyan. It was ridiculous the power to go through journalist notes and uh, try to discover sources for things that we already knew um, should be given by some court clerk. I think what Uh, need to be done is to persuade and indeed uh, Maurice Payne was there with Amal Clooney last year at a a conference uh, which I attended just after the raids and she was I thought quite embarrassed by the way everyone else was saying well what a second rate country Australia is that they can barge into journalists and newspaper offices and so forth. So it is a constant problem and there are organizations which seek to protect journalists and it's very important. Jeffrey, great to speak to you. Thanks so much for speaking to us on the briefing. Good luck with lockdown there in London and your shows when they come around next year here in Australia. That was Jeffrey Robertson, QC, Annika. Will you get along to that stage show? He's pretty entertaining, isn't he? I'm not going to lie. While he was talking, I did look up tickets. I thought it might be a good Christmas present for my parents. I hope they're not listening. Hopefully COVID goes away so we can make it and we're all allowed into the studio. All right, that's it for today. Tomorrow, we look at the planning that's gone into this very unique Melbourne Cup. A Podcast One production.